Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. First, Galen Mook, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition, on two ballot questions with implications for safe streets in Massachusetts. Hi, Galen. Hey, Nick. What's going on? Well, we got two ballot questions that are statewide right now that pertain to transportation. The first one is called Question One, and that would be a tax on people who are doing uh, capital gains that are over a million dollars in a year. If you get that much money in capital gains, then they start to tax you a little bit more above that. So say you get $2 million in you know, a windfall of a lotto or a house or something. After a million dollars, anything above that, it's another 15% tax, I do believe. That money goes directly towards education and transportation. So it's earmarked in the state legislature to go only towards education, schools, um, funding for teachers, the state school programs. And then the other pool would be for transportation for our roads, our bridges, our trains, our buses, our bike lanes, our sidewalks, et cetera. So question one is called the fair share tax, also called the millionaire's tax. Personally, I'm supportive of question one because I think we need more money for our schools and transportation. And the other one is question four, which would be a requirement of folks who are undocumented in terms of their immigration status. They would still be allowed to go get driver's licenses because we know that undocumented immigrants are driving around on our roads and we don't have a legal requirement that facilitates them in order to get trained and licensed. So question four is sensible because we know it's happening already and this would just make it legal for undocumented immigrants to then go and be able to get an RMV permit, RMV license, get insured, get to know the rules of the road and then drive around our streets. And it just makes our roads safer because it gives everyone a baseline of education. So those are our two ones, question one and question four. And uh, all your listeners in Massachusetts, I do hope they look into it. And early voting has started. So maybe you've already voted, but if you haven't by November 8th, um, take a look and uh, know what you're doing for question one and question four. Next Tuesday. Thanks, Galen. Take, take care. care. In San Francisco, two measures on this week's ballot will confuse voters. Measure J would keep a section of JFK Drive in Golden Gate Park free from cars. The other would remove the car-free space on JFK and the Great Walkway and another road along the ocean. Zach Lipton, a Prop J volunteer, goes over I and J with Stacy Randecker. This is Stacy Randecker. I am here in San Francisco, and with me is Zach Lipton, who is a local transportation advocate and is fiercely campaigning for Yes on J. And he's back to tell us a lot of the background of the Prop J story. So Zach, how are you? How is it going? Doing well. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a huge number of ballots that have not been turned in yet. And we're really just trying to get the word out and explain these ballot measures to people because the the fate of this really amazing car-free space for people is is definitely on the line. Yeah. You have a lot to tell us about the history of the space and um, how this all came to pass. So I will let you take it away. Sure. So th- there's a really interesting history to this. What we're talking about here is a 1.5 mile stretch that's essentially one half of one street in Golden Gate Park, San Francisco's largest park. Um, and there's a really interesting history that goes back more than a century of people fighting for this space and figuring out what it should be and whether it should be for cars or for people. Um, This goes all the way back to when the park was originally laid out, um, you know, over 150 years ago. 
it, it was designed for pedestrians, bicyclists, et cetera. Cars weren't a thing. And when automobiles started to arrive in San Francisco, uh, they were pretty quickly banned um, from the park. In fact, San Francisco was one of the first cities in the nation to uh, ban cars from the park entirely. It didn't last too long. Quickly, the Automobile Club of America got involved and started lobbying, saying there should be cars in the park. People made very deliberate choices about where cars were allowed and where cars weren't. We often take for granted today that this is just sort of the natural order of things that, well, of course, these places have cars, but that these spaces were bitterly fought over a century ago. And cars largely took over the, the city of San Francisco for many decades since then. But there was a fight into the 1960s that eventually led to allowing um, a car-free space on this portion of, of JFK Drive on Sundays. It was really limited, and that's how things were until the pandemic started. And there was suddenly this huge need for outdoor recreation and space for social distancing. And the city, pretty quickly, and to their credit, agreed to um, close the space to cars to create that kind of re um, recreational space that we all needed. People flocked to it, and it really became sort of, I think, one of the only good things to come out of, of such a horrible time. Um, I know, you know, in, in the last two years, I think I've been to the park more than in the rest of my life combined. And I know that's the experience of a lot of people I know, um, that it's really sort of brought new life into the park and made us see it in a whole different way as, as this positive space. Um, when before having the park's main artery just clogged with, with cars. And we know that at least 75% of those cars weren't even visiting the park. They were just using it as a cut through to get um, across neighborhoods. So it wasn't even, um, so people were just sort of using it as a highway, which isn't what a park should be for. So there was this real fight then over, well, as we're coming out of the pandemic, well, should we, should we keep it? Um, and that led to this, this massive campaign um, that Walk San Francisco, Kid Safe SF, the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, and just so many volunteers got involved in to um, over about an 18-month campaign to fight to make the pandemic car-free space permanent. Um, so we were out there. We got about 10,000 people to sign postcards asking to keep it permanent. There were city surveys. There were um, accessibility audits. There were improvements to a lot of different accessibility features, including a, a shuttle bus that runs for free up and down through the car-free space um, was converted to happen every single day um, and lots of other things. There were multiple hearings of, of nine plus hours each before various city boards and commissions, everybody giving public comment. And ultimately, our board of supervisors uh, voted in April to maintain it as a, a car-free space. And we all celebrated and won. And we're, we're pretty happy with ourselves as sort of cementing a legacy for the city that had stretched over a century of, of fights over this one road and restoring it to being something that was fundamentally park space and not just a thoroughfare for people to get from one neighborhood to another. So it seems like we, okay, yeah, big win, we're, like we're kind of done, right? Exactly. And a lot of us were sort of looking at, you know, what's next? What else does the city need in terms of a comprehensive bike network? Because JFK, it's obviously a wonderful park space and recreation space. It's also a really key part of the bike network for people 
coming from an entire area of the city towards downtown, it's a really key artery for those using active transportation as well. Agreed. Now, who disturbed this? What force (laughs) was brought upon this and why? (laughs) So this is where we get to learn about Dee Dee Wilsey, who is a uh, rich socialite in San Francisco and a mega donor to the Donald Trump campaign to the point that she co-hosted a fundraiser with uh, Don Jr. himself. Uh, And she put up the money to um, put a measure on the ballot here in November to go out and gather 15,000 signatures or so with paid signature gatherers for what would become Proposition I, which would require, essentially, it would require that um, the space return to the pre-pandemic arrangement in which there would be cars five days a week and half the Saturdays, and it would undo basically everything we had accomplished. I heard that she paid signature gatherers $8.00. A signature. At and least. And when, when you pay signature gatherers like that, they will go out and they will do and say anything to, to get the signatures. And they will put those petitions in front of so many eyeballs and get people to sign them. It doesn't take a whole lot of signatures to, to qualify something for the ballot here in San Francisco. So they reached their target and got on the ballot. And now we're spending our time, unfortunately, fighting just to keep what we have when I think a lot of us would love to be spending our time improving things rather than just trying to keep the gains that we made during the pandemic. When I think about Team Bike being occupied with fighting and relitigating and canvassing and lobbying and whatever for what we already did for nearly two years, it's absolutely maddening to me. I feel for you guys so much. Thank you for doing this work. (laughs) Thank Um, you. I mean, it's important work, but it's definitely exhausting because, I mean, this is a city that is very slow to make decisions in general. And we felt like we we finally, after so much work, we got a decision and we got it done. And then to sort of go back and go, no, it's not really done. We're going to revisit this whole thing again. Um, it's tough. And there's a lot of voters to talk to and a lot of people to reach and just explain because there's two measures on the ballot, I and J, that are opposing each other. Explaining what they are to people takes a lot of time and energy to make sure they understand what they're voting on. So it's one thing to go after JFK in the park, which just seriously sounds like some Darth Vader-ish sort of move. (laughs) But then we also, during the pandemic, had gained the Great Walkway, which is the highway that runs along Ocean Beach. So can you tell us about the Great Walkway, how that came about, how she tied that in? Sure. So similarly to JFK Drive, there's a four-lane highway called the Great Highway that runs along the Pacific Ocean in uh, much of the uh, western portion of San Francisco. And there was a a similar request to convert that to pedestrian space during the pandemic to create space for social distancing, um, outdoor recreation, and transportation. Uh, That was also likewise a great success that really people flocked to it to walk, to ride bikes, or kids riding scooters. And just so many community events as well that this new linear park created. So what Proposition I, this ballot measure we're fighting, does is really three things. It takes away the the car-free space on JFK Promenade that we we fought for and won in Golden Gate Park. It takes away entirely the car-free space on the Great Walkway and requires that it be a highway full-time, year-round, every day. 
And it also requires that this small bit of road on a bluff over by the zoo at the very southern bit of the country, uh, of the city, um, which is a bit of road that most people don't really think about or care about, also permanently remain a roadway. And that has some rather surprising and weird implications that I'm not sure anybody quite expected. But the more I learned about it, the more kind of fascinating that small detail buried in the fine print of Proposition I becomes. And that's because we have a wastewater treatment plant there that had already been scheduled to make use of that roadway off of the Great Highway Extension, I think they call it. Exactly. So the Great Highway Extension is falling into the Pacific Ocean which is what happens when you, when you build a roadway, an elevated roadway directly along the sea. One of the major effects of climate change is sea level rise, and that has led to increased coastal erosion. And that led to this project that was going to close that small bit of road on the bluff, the one that's falling into the sea, that would be close to car traffic. They would build underneath it um, a structure that would protect the sewage treatment infrastructure that's there, because that's vitally important. We don't want raw sewage leaking out onto the beach um, when if the erosion reached that level, which it's a critical critical danger of doing. Um, and Proposition I, its backers, I don't know if they didn't know about this or just didn't care, but they included this, this bit of language in, in the fine print of the legal text of the measure, which says that, no, this part must be a road just like before, and it must stay a road forever which would mean throwing out that entire plan that's been developed over the past 14 years. It would mean throwing out all the hundreds of pages of environmental review that's been done, all of the engineering and blueprints that have been drawn up, and basically starting over to with a new design. And what that new design would likely be is what's called a conventional seawall. Seawalls destroy beaches. When, when the waves yeah. hit a wall, the energy of the wave has to go somewhere. And it would lead to losing the beach, not just where the seawall is, but both to the north and south of the wall as well. So it would really just be really ecologically destructive. And that's why we really quickly got endorsements from all these environmental organizations, um, the Surfrider Foundation, Sierra Club, San Francisco League of Conservation Voters, et cetera, because all of these groups have been involved in this planning process for over a decade of what to do with this part of our, our coastline, and they were shocked to see this ballot measure suddenly appear that would just throw all that away without really any consideration of their work or what effects it would have on the environment. And how about the price tag of the seawall construction? How about that? That would also add $80 million of additional costs to the project. It would really be quite devastating for Proposition I to win. If she's going to spend that much money to get this thing on the ballot and lobby for it and, you know, rally all the driver people to support it, don't you think they might have checked on that? I don't know. I can understand a debate over should the space be a road or should it be a park space for people? Obviously, I tend to come down on the side of park space for people because, I think we need more of that. And we have so much space that's dedicated for cars in our city. But I understand that give and take. On the other hand, this is really much more a fight over whether we should adapt to our changing climate and acknowledge that the ocean is, is rising and that we are going to need to change things to deal with that. 
or whether we're going to sort of stubbornly put our foot down and say, no, I can't tolerate any change. I will not drive, you know, a minute out of my way because of the changing ocean. I want to build a wall here. I want to, I don't care what the consequences are. I don't care what the costs are. I want to just pretend that climate change is not happening, essentially. And that's that's a really scary thought, given this is an easy one for us to adapt to climate change. This is one fairly underutilized bit of road that is at the far edge of the city that we have plans in place to adapt to climate change. There are much more complicated and difficult things we're going to need to do over the next few decades to adapt to sea level rise that are going to be a lot more expensive and a lot more controversial. And if drivers can't even handle the idea of needing to use a slightly different route to adapt to climate change in this case, then how are they going to handle the much larger effects that we're going to need to deal with um, as climate change worsens? I can't believe that we cannot take steps forward, that we keep on taking steps backward. I cannot believe that it is this, this painful. And, and in a place, yes, we have hills, but everything else, the temperature year round, the vibe here, you know, you can bike essentially 365 days of the year, no problem. It doesn't snow. It's never that stinking hot. The rain only happens at certain predictable times of the year. And even then it's water. <laughs> it's not exactly. That big of a deal. And there's really been this, this sort of wonderful shift of so many people during the pandemic who, who've gotten e-bikes, who've um, gotten cargo bikes for their kids, who've uh, taken up cycling again, who are riding on, on scooters and other forms of active transportation um, that you're really seeing. And I think, you know, when you, if you build it, they will come is definitely true. Like we've created these car free spaces in the park and the great walkway along the ocean. And suddenly all these people come out of the woodwork and are using them. They're using them both for recreation and they're using them just for transportation as well. Um, and getting creating that kind of safe space that people aren't afraid of just getting run over by cars is a really important way to have that transition. That someone who starts off just riding in the park around for fun is going to realize, well, while I'm there, I might as well, you know, go pick up some groceries a few blocks away. And then they realize that they can do that. And they start expanding their their radius and their range of where they feel comfortable and safe to go as long as we have safe spaces for them to ride. These platforms, until we have the connected, protected, slow grid for us, exactly. these are the these are the platforms that are absolutely critical to getting more people on a bike. Well, yeah, Zach, so. thank you so much for explaining that to us, breaking it all down, giving us the skinny and the all the dirt on INJ, and that is no on J. Yes. Yes, on J. Yes, on J. No, on I. J for joy. <laughs> I is idiotic. Yes, on J for joy. <laughs> and I'm an informed voter. What are those other people going to do? <laughs> it's very confusing. You have these two measures on the ballot that both um, are related to the same roads, and it, it definitely confuses people. So yeah. we're spending a lot of time explaining it and handing out literature and trying to make sure everybody knows. Well, thank you for doing that. And I can't wait to have you back for a victory party and hear what we can tackle next. Fingers crossed. Looking forward to it. Some people say, hey, I like to drive. Well, that's okay. Vote yes on Jay. 
And you can drive anywhere and anytime On every street and every road Everywhere you want to go In the sunshine and the rain In the day and in the dark Except a mile and a half in the park So you gotta vote yes on Jay Some people say, hey, I'm mobility challenged Well, that's okay Vote yes on Jay and There's a safe and quiet place for you to be No matter your ability There's a shuttle to take you there Away from cars to cleaner air Full of kids and full of joys Far from traffic and from noise But you gotta vote yes on Jay Yes on Jay Jay for joy Yes on Jay Jay for girls and boys and adults of every age Who wanna run and walk and jump and jog and scoot and skate and ride their bikes and play You gotta vote yes on Jay You gotta vote yes on Jay No one I I for injury I for idling I for idiotic policy No one I I for ignorant Irresponsible I for I believe that I deserve to drive In the park and by the ocean You will inhale my commotion I will destroy the open spaces And the children's smiling faces I for insane Yes, Anjay J for joy Yes, Anjay J for girls and boys and adults of every age Who wanna run and walk and jump and jog and scoot and skate and ride their bikes and play You gotta vote yes on J You gotta vote yes on J That was Yes on Jay by John Elliott. Now, the advocacy director of Bike East Bay in Northern California is stepping down. Dave Campbell talks about what he's learned about bike advocacy and what he'll do next. 
Hey Dave, you know, you're leaving. You're leaving Bike East Bay. How long has it been? How long were you with Bike East Bay? Well, back in 1996, I moved to the Bay Area. I was practicing law in downtown San Francisco, living in Berkeley. I went down to Justin Herman Plaza. There was a transportation fair going on down there during lunch one day. And I think it was Robert Rayburn, the then the executive director put a bike safety quiz in front of my face and said, test your knowledge of the rules of the road as they apply to bicycling. And so I did and I failed the quiz and decided I need to go to this group's meetings. And so started attending the East Bay Bicycle Coalition, then as we were known, monthly meetings and just got involved now some 26 years ago. Wow. Dave, what have you learned over the years <laughs> about advocacy? God, yeah, what have I learned? I've learned a lot. Uh, you don't have enough time in your show, but what are some of the more important things I've learned? Things just randomly responding to your good question. You know, things move very slowly. Streets are these big, hard, heavy things that don't change very quickly. And that's still the case. What we've learned more recently is it is a little easier than we thought it would be, or what we thought it was, to do some quick changes to streets using cheaper, lower cost materials to either test out some cheap street reconfigurations or retrofit ideas, or as a kind of a first phase of a longer term capital improvement. And so cities are doing more and more of these, these things. They're called various things like tactical urbanism, uh, demonstration bikeway projects, quick build projects, pop-up bikeways. They're all kind of in this family of doing things quicker, either you know within a day or a week or a month to try things out. And those things can become permanent. They can also not become permanent. Your, the idea is you're testing things, but also they give the community a, a really useful opportunity to provide feedback that's helpful in ways you wouldn't get if you just had a survey or a photo or a rendering, a 3D, even a 3D rendering. You're, you just get better feedback from people experiencing the changes on the street. And so that's why we do those things. So tactical urbanism is one thing we've learned is useful and more and more cities are doing this. Uh, what we're seeing is requests for proposals go out to consulting firms, cities are putting them out and they're including in there in this planning effort in the street safety project to do a tactical urbanism one day event uh, or multi-day event. And so more and more consultants are doing that. And when I was ready to step down here at Bikey Spay and figure out what I wanted to do next, you know, I thought about starting my own company to have a whole warehouse of these materials that you can do quick build projects with and make it available as a consultant, essentially, to other consulting teams and cities. And yeah, we'll come in and we'll do this pop-up street reconfiguration for a day. And we'll be able to do uh, a bigger, longer project. We could even do my goal, my dream was to do like a half mile project, maybe even up to a mile street reconfiguration so we would have lots of supplies to change the street up like what yeah. supplies would you need a combination of the cheap traffic materials like traffic tape flex posts bumps mini bumps they call them uh signage just temporary signage a-frame signage that kind of stuff as well as some things to improve the street sort of the design and comfort of the street you know maybe some fake trees or some fake AstroTurf or some straw waddles to create pedestrian bulb outs or to narrow pedestrian crossings, you know, maybe some artwork as well. Things to enliven the street and get people to think differently than the dark gray asphalt and the light gray 
cement. We're used to, you know, building facade to building facade on these streets. Add some color. Mm -hmm. And there are groups doing this elsewhere in the country. This We wouldn't be the first. There's a group in Dallas that does this. A group in San Gabriel Valley does this. There's even a group down in Santa Cruz that does these sort of larger, longer-term tactical urbanism projects. And the Bay needs that too. So that was that was one thing I've learned. Getting back to your first question. The other thing I've learned is the traffic engineering profession still has issues with it. It's still entrenched in thinking about streets the way that it always has. And it still hasn't broken free of, you know, cars first, the streets are designed for cars, the rules are designed for cars. The traffic engineering profession is still constrained to think about streets with cars first, the way that their engineering, the way the profession was born and has operated for probably a hundred years. You know, traffic engineers are more and more agreeable to think about safety improvements for people walking and biking and even transit improvements, but they have to be add-ons. It's still an add-on. It's still in addition to designing streets for cars first. We need a new manual or a new set of rules that say everyone on the street is equal. The person in the car is not the higher priority user of the street as they are today. And certainly not the person parking their car. So how do you get that profession to change? That's still going to be part of what I do. It certainly has to happen at the state level. Maybe it happens at the national level. We'll see. That's another thing I've learned is the traffic engineering profession is not, they're not going to help us achieve what we want. Well, they may help or they may get out of the way, but they're not going to be the ones that do it. It's going to take sort of the active safety advocates and supporters out there that do it. And how we make that happen, it's still a work in progress. Uh, so that's one. And then I, another thing I've learned, and we've here in the East Bay, we're not a national leader in this, but you need protected bike lanes. You need separated safe space to bike on streets. This mixing of bikes and cars on busy street does not work. And at least it doesn't work today, and it hasn't worked in the 25 years I've been doing this. Maybe someday in the future it does. Maybe there's a different future out there where all cars go five miles an hour, but that's not today. That's probably not tomorrow, and it certainly wasn't yesterday. And so we we need to figure out a way to efficiently wrap up these conversations about how do we mix bikes and cars? We still spend so much time trying to figure that out, and we have to stop. It's like we don't mix sidewalks and cars. We, we have to stop mixing bikes and scooters and those sorts of things in cars. They need to be separated. They need to be safe, on, at least on busy streets where there's lots of traffic. And, and we're still not there yet. I mean, ACTO is there and we have some guides out there that say you should do this, but they're just guides. There's nothing mandatory. It's not best practice. It's not, you know, a state standard that you have to do this yet. And we have very supportive people at the top of the Caltrans right now. And even they can't make this our reality. Uh, so hopefully soon. What is making you step away? I'm working with cities and stakeholders on redesigning the entire street and not just the entire street for all users, but the entire corridor as well. Having all kinds of conversations with transit agencies, fire departments, ADA access issues. And so that's really the work that I've gained a lot of experience in, the work that I want to do to help people do multimodal projects, complete street projects, not just bike projects. There's always a role and a needed role for a bike advocacy group, but I felt like some of the things I was doing with Bike East Bay, I'd taken them as far as I could take them. Not that someone else can't take them farther. It just felt like I had kind of gotten things advanced as far as, as I could. Mm. The thing I really want to do is, you know, be more on the inside, work for a state agency, government agency on the inside on these complete street projects so that 
when these ideas that I have come up about making projects better, you know, I'm on the inside and I'm working with the people who make these projects better, doing it from the inside and not just from the outside, asking or advocating for it or, or sometimes yelling at people about it. So earlier you said that engineers are not going to do it on their own. They have to be pushed by advocates, but people on the inside who are not engineers can? Yeah, yeah. There's lots of non-engineers on the inside, absolutely. We need more design. We need more planning uh, for our streets. You know, projects can be better. And I see that as an advocate, and I see that because I'm, I'm working with several cities, 33 in total in East Bay, and I'm ready to roll up my sleeves on the inside and make it happen. All right, well, what can we do to support? We're pretty blessed with the amount of transportation funding we have, but we still don't have this commitment to make streets safe or walking and biking. It's still an add-on. It's like a nice thing to have if we can. You know, we've tried complete street policies. Those don't work. They just don't work, <laughs> sadly to say. You know, bike plans, pedestrian plans, they absolutely don't work. You know, if there's a higher priority out there, the bike plan is not going to trump what's going on. You know, I think Caltrans or the state of California need to adopt you know, a bikeway design guide, or not just a bikeway, just like a bikeway shared mobility design guide that says, here are the minimum standards. You cannot lower safety below these standards. The kind of thing that traffic engineers would see and go, okay, I get that. It's written in my language. It's written in ways that direct my thinking, the way that all these other car-centric things are written. It has that same sort of style to it. I think that would be the probably the best thing for us to do right now. You know, these things exist. I think Massachusetts has one and certainly other cities around the world have these things. And we have them for cars. We have them for lots of ways of travel. We have them for trains and planes and cars. And so some kind of strong state design mandates or at least minimums. We need that. My other answer to this question is we need a game changer. What if we could direct a certain amount of money and a certain amount of staff and resources to one neighborhood, one city, one community, and redesign it for people relatively quickly to show that cities that are less designed for cars and more designed for people are going to be much safer, much more successful. So we could do it for any number of reasons. We could do it for bikes if we wanted to. We could do it for pedestrians. We could do it for transit. We could do it for ADA. We could do it for equity. There's all kinds of reasons we could do it. Let's start with some pilot projects that direct resources to them. And then also, in some ways, relax the, the rules or the requirements for getting things done in order to test the idea of, you know, can we jumpstart a different type of community, a different type of street network, pilot some communities to make these game-changing reconfigurations. And hopefully you're going to go somewhere where you can help with that. Yes, that's the goal. Because I love doing this. It's not work to me. I don't feel like I... I go to work anymore. I I just do what I do because it's life. It's my community. It's my street out in front of where I live or it's the street where I'm going. It's just how I am. So I'll stay in this at least for as long as I'm ready to keep working before I retire. Thank you, Dave. You're leaving us in good hands. Absolutely. And we're hiring at Bikey's Bay. We're hiring a new mobility justice director as well, hopefully in the next few months. So we'll have a somewhat new, very strong new team to start the new year 2023. Good luck to you and to us all. And thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You're still listening to Bike Talk. Now we have a guest from the Netherlands, Eric De Winter, co-founder of Car Guru Bike Share. Eric is with Taylor Nichols. 
Good afternoon and welcome to Bike Talk. I'm Taylor Nichols and today we're here with Eric De Winter who is Dutch. He's from Amsterdam and he's here in Los Angeles now on a fact-finding mission with the Dutch Trade Mission. Eric, welcome to Bike Talk. Hi, Taylor. Good afternoon. I want to jump in really quick because I was saying earlier, you're coming the other way. I feel like most people in the United States, certainly in Los Angeles, want to go to Amsterdam and want to go to Copenhagen to see the bicycle infrastructure. So can you tell me what the Dutch trade mission is doing here? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Taylor. It makes it easy that we can chat in the same time zone. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad we got this time together. Yeah, so the trade mission is led by the Dutch government, really. So it's a trade mission of quite some high-ranked politicians, our Minister of Sustainability and Mobility and Minister of Health, and also a lot of Dutch entrepreneurs. And it's about two tracks. It's life sciences and urban mobility. And needless to say, I'm part of the urban mobility track. And it's been great to visit California. So it's really a mission to strengthen the ties between the Netherlands and California. Great. Uh, yeah. You were in San Francisco last week and you're in Los Angeles. Both this week. So oh. we had a couple of days in San Francisco beginning of the week and now traveled to Los Angeles where we were fortunate enough to meet both mayors. So both Mayor London Breed and the mayor of Los Angeles yesterday. So it was very nice. Good visit. What's the state of California bicycle infrastructure and California active mobility? Yeah, big question. And I think the really good thing, because we also got a chance to speak to TVA and several transport departments of both Los Angeles and San Francisco. And on a positive note, I think there's a lot of will and aspiration. And I think a clear understanding that things have to be changed and things have to go differently. So I think that was a really good learning. But on the other hand, the cities are so dominantly built around automobiles that they also see a big Mount Everest in front of them on how to tackle this and how to really push for infrastructure, push for cycling stimulation, right. then push for the right initiatives. And I thought it was really striking to see that funding seemed to play a massive role. There was quite a lot of people that really thought funding was a blocking issue, wow. whereas I can somewhat understand, but I think it's also about prioritizing funding and it comes with a lot of political will and right. bravery. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. From our point of view here, we have leaders who just lack the political will. I'm sure after riding around San Francisco, which is a little bit difficult to ride in because of the hills, it's actually a pretty good city and they are making some changes. Los Angeles, you're here at the tail end of a huge heat wave, but Los Angeles is an amazing city to bike around. It's basically flat. The weather, except for this week, is really good, but we just cannot get our leaders on board the way you all have in the Netherlands. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a struggle there. And I haven't really pinpointed what that is. Either not getting a broader, how shall I say, buy-in. Yeah. But I guess that the automotive industry lobby is just massive and something that's really hard to beat. Yeah. So that definitely comes to play. The pandemic has been a breath of fresh air, not to be ironic about it, but it has helped us start to change. And so I'm really glad you guys have been here. And Maybe our leaders will now go to Amsterdam and to Copenhagen and to the Netherlands to see the kind of stuff you are doing there. I think I said earlier, I'm going to go to Amsterdam in early October. So I hope we'll get a chance to talk then. Yeah, I'm looking to. forward to seeing what's going on there. Yeah, I'd love to get you on a bike, preferably one of our bikes. Um, well, let's jump yeah, into that. Before we do, I must say we did quite an extensive cycle trip in San Francisco and also in Los Angeles yesterday. 
And I must say, it's been really great. I really enjoyed cycling. Obviously, we did take the roads that have the infrastructure in place, so it's a bit biased. So I didn't really do the commuter tracks, but I think it has great potential. I heard that 50% of all car trips in the US are less than three miles. Yeah. yeah so yeah. to me, it seems like, whoa, that gives a lot of hope and a lot of potential. So I am quite optimistic that it will happen, but we don't have time. I always say it's awful that we have to spend a gallon of gas to buy a gallon of milk. You're right. And I've heard it's even higher than 50%. So often people just go to the grocery store or their job or a friend's house and they end up driving because it's just easier and safer than it is to bike. The customs. Yeah. Well, something else I want to talk about is Cargo Roo, which is your company in Amsterdam. I guess it's spread out through the Netherlands. And I think you're also in Berlin. Did you see any cargo bikes while you were here at all or not? Hardly any. Yeah. I saw two in San Francisco and I saw one in LA. Well, actually, Santa Monica Bike Center. They actually helped us out with a bike and we nicely banded it towards Cargo Roo. So no, I didn't see a single cargo bike in Los Angeles. But just so the audience, the people that are listening know, a cargo bike is a bike that has been adapted to take a fair amount of cargo, whether it be children or groceries. I was on your website, cargoroo.eu, correct? Yeah, .eu or .nl. Yeah, both. Yeah. And can you tell us some of the specifics of what your bike can carry? Yeah, I would love to. So maybe good to understand what we do is we make cargo bikes shareable, basically accessible for everyone everywhere. And we do that through our sharing platform. So what we do is we place our electric cargo bikes in cities. There where we see that there's a need and the demand and basically let people rent them through our app to replace car rides in cities. And it's astonishing to see the diversity of use cases. It's very typical that in Europe, it kind of has the stigma that you would call like a cargo bike or a buck feeds mom, but it's much broader than that. So what we see is that it's being used a lot by families with children, them being young or a bit older. And we'd like to call that family logistics. So they have the grocery runs, they have the kids do the soccer field runs, they have recreational runs, or maybe even commute to school when you have to take a friend right. back for a play date. Right. Then you have a group of, I like to say, starters. So people that are on the fence of buying a car or don't own a car and just need to move goods and stuff around town. There's a lot of dog owners, surprisingly. And well, I'm not surprised anymore, but there's a lot of people that carry the dog. It's a front loader bike. So right. it's an electric assisted bike, which has a place for cargo and kids in the front. And then business owners. So a lot of people that have their business in the city and just need to move packages around or have to do errands. That's also how that whole idea was actually incepted by co-founder Jelle, who bought one because he had a business in the city. I owned a restaurant in Amsterdam and was expecting his second child. He was fed up with driving around the city in his car when he needed to move his family or stuff. So he bought a narrow cargo bike, electric. And actually, the moment he left the dealer, he sensed this massive feeling of liberation and freedom. Right. Like, wow, man, I can really smoothly cruise through the city with wife and kid in the front. And he put it in the front of his restaurant. And before you know it, his wine supplier would say, hey, can I borrow the bike? And he'd bring a couple of boxes. The coffee roaster said the same. And so did the upstairs neighbor who wanted to go a bit further to the park with her grandchild. So a little sharing community grew right away. That really catalyzed the idea. Like it's not everyone is fortunate enough to be able to buy one. They have to store it because they are big. If you don't have a driveway or a place that you can really store it. Exactly. The space that it takes up and you don't need it all day. So yeah. it's underutilized for 99%. My car sits in the driveway 99% of the time. Yeah. And then I use it hardly ever. 
Exactly. And that's the mission we're on, let's put it this way, to make sure that we basically get as much people as possible access to an electric cargo bike as a car replacer. And luckily, the cargo bike market is growing really rapidly, 70% per year at this point in the sales numbers. But if we don't watch out, we'll make the same mistake as we did with the car, that everyone goes out to buy one, then the thing stands still for 99% of the time, taking up valuable space. So yeah, I think it's our role to educate people to really see it as a sharing object. Just so people understand, you download the app, which is CargoRoo, C-A-R-G-O-R-O-O, as in kangaroo, I guess. Exactly. And then that app shows you where the different cargo bikes are parked around town. You don't have a dock. There's not a bay. You can just lock it up anywhere. Yeah. And then once I'm done with it, I leave it there. And then someone else can see it on their app that it's there. And yeah. they can just go rent it to go to the grocery store to take their kid to school, like you said, to go to the hardware store. Yeah. And it's round trips, right? So it's A to A movements. So you pick it up, you collect it at one of our locations and you bring it back. It's only one bike on one spot. So we kind of have a fine grid over neighborhoods where we see there's a demand and then have a grid of cargo bikes parked. There. I'm just curious, how much is it an hour? Yeah, it's four euro 80 cents. So it's under five euro per hour. So that's seven cents per minute. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I was doing some research, looking forward to talking to you. And I was watching some videos on your website. And I think this video was on your website. It might've been the guy that does not just bikes. I don't know if you know that website. It's an American who moved to Amsterdam, but either way, I think it was on yours, but it's a great video of a parent taking their child to school and they're showing what the kid sees from the front of the cargo bike as they ride through town. And then he cuts to the point of view of the child in the back of a car in a car seat. And he doesn't see anything. They're not out there in the space. They're not out there in the world. And I think that's one of the great things about bikes, but also about cargo bikes. It's astonishing. And it's so fulfilling to get all this feedback from users and then customers who experience it. Like we always say, like, put your kids in the back of the car. They'll start getting bored and beating each other up. If you put them in the front of the cargo bike, they actually have fun. Because they're out exploring, seeing things, experiencing, getting in touch with their surroundings. So it has so much more of a positive effect than maybe just replacing a car ride out of, say, CO2 reduction perspective. But it's generally contributing to well-being of the one cycling and the one being cycled. How do you power them up? The user doesn't have to charge the bike, right? It's charged. Yeah, correct. So we take care of all that. So we do battery swapping, obviously, with an electric cargo bike. So we are battery swappers. They do their rounds and they swap batteries when they see that the state of charge is low. And obviously, we make sure that we do all the service and maintenance and make sure they're clean. But yeah, we do that ourselves. Yeah, I think electric bikes are a real game changer. And I think it's going to get people who don't normally bike on bikes because they can go in a suit or a sport coat and a tie or something like that or up a hill and not feel like they're going to sweat to death or something like that. Yeah, everyone should just experience it. And I think that's a big challenge also you guys have here in the US. You have to make it cool and make it very attractive for people to right. just start experiencing this thing. I, always- you know, I have a good story about cargo bikes. A good friend of mine, a guy named Josh Paget, got married and he wanted to leave the church with his bride in a cargo bike. So I was the one who had to ride the cargo bike to the church to leave it for him and had just married signs on it and had some tin cans behind the cargo bike. And I had to ride it quite a distance from the pickup place to the church. And I got more honks and people yelling at me, congratulations, even though there was no bride in the front of my cargo bike. But they really are fun to ride. And electric assist really does make it easy. It's like a constant wind in the back, which is a bit more. 
So it's really a breeze to ride it. And obviously you can go further with more ease. So yeah, it's definitely a game changer. Did you look at the bike share programs here in Los Angeles while you were here? Yes, we stopped by a few. Yeah. And did you ride any of those bikes? I did briefly. I sat on a lift and I sat on a program from Metro Bike. Oh, okay. Both electric. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, both electric. Good. Okay. Yeah. yeah, because we went cycling with like a big delegation of, I think we were 60 people. So we were actually doing a sort of a critical mass right. through the streets of Vélez and Santa Monica. And Did the like... mayor go with you or any of the city council people? No, the mayor didn't go with me. Some city council people did. Yeah. And our minister, she cycled along, which was very nice. Right. Well, yeah. 60 people sure is a lot of fun to ride. Um, yeah. Do they have critical mass in Amsterdam or is it not necessary? You don't see that. No. Well, not that I know of, I should say. Partaken in a few in Germany, which yeah. has been a lot of fun, especially the cargo bike scene is still quite grassroots there. Yeah, they're nice. Well, tell us really quick how to get information about Cargo Roo and where you are on the web and your Twitter yeah. name and all that stuff. Yeah, so obviously on all the social platforms, you can follow us on and be updated on what we do. Usually you can find us by looking up Cargo Roo Bike. You mentioned the website, cargo.eu. I love to get in touch with people, so be happy to just throw out my email. That's eric with a K at cargo.nl okay. from the Netherlands. And that's how you can follow us. Maybe nice to say what cities we are. So yeah, if please people do. are listening, yeah, it's worth your while to download the app. Now mainly focused on the Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany. So we're in the main cities in the Netherlands, Amsterdam, Utrecht, The Hague, and Eindhoven from, I think, beginning of October. And we're in Nijmegen and Arnhem. And in Belgium, we have three cities. The biggest one is Antwerp, which we just launched this summer. And really nice to see how that's getting adopted. And we're in Leuven and Mechelen with a smaller fleet of bikes. And exciting first German city is Berlin, which we also just started this summer. So it's early days, but it seems that people are very happy with the service. Are there any at the airports? There are not at the airports, no. An interesting use case eh, to get your luggage into town. As we are catering round trips, it's a bit oh. tricky. So yeah. I mean, usually... having to go back there and drop them off. Exactly. Right? Study shows that about 85% of cargo bike trips are back and forth movements. But yeah, I usually take that use case as something we can't cater. Like if I have to take my suitcase to the train station and leave the bike there, that's not possible. Right. And exciting to announce that we'll be launching our first French city in Lyon somewhere end of this month, where we're doing a collaboration with Yessie Deco, the out-of-home advertiser. And the same app works for every country or wherever you are. Yeah, it's the same system, same fixed locations. Right. I was in Barcelona recently, and they have a company called Donkey Republic. Yeah, they're not cargo bikes and they're not e-bikes, but you can pick up a bike wherever you want and ride it. And it was such a great way to see the city that I would love to do it in Amsterdam also now. Yeah, great. Can't wait to have you there, Taylor. I'm looking forward to it. I've never been there. Oh, wow. Well, Eric DeWinter, thank you so much for finding some time to share your stories with us and your trip with us here at Bike Talk. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot for having me, Taylor. And we appreciate you taking time to have this conversation. You're still listening to Bike Talk. Now a moment of bike joy with Tony. Hey, Tony. And tell me about your bike here. Well, honestly, dude, it was just a huffy bike from Target. But um, I needed something to deliver food with because I did the delivery business. I started off pedaling. And I knew (laughs) almost kind of like right now, winter is coming up and I'm going to be wearing a sweater. (laughs) I'm going to be wearing some jeans and it's going to be hard to pedal in December and it's going to be cold so I needed to save up money to build an electric bike I was like and you built it yourself right he's yeah. got an old Huffy bike here that he put an electric assist on 
and it's powered through the front wheel there? Um, it was back wheel drive, but then one of the wires ended up touching another wire. So those blew out. So I had to buy another motor. And this time I learned from my error that when I bought the new motor, I got some electrical tape and I wired the wires so they could be thicker and they don't interconnect to them. And the battery didn't connect to the motor, so I had to do a whole bunch of soldering. Well, how'd you learn how to do all that? I just had to look at YouTube. Wow, you just figured it out yourself. I had to figure it out. And then once I saw the motor start to spin, it was just all joy because I did spend like a good $700 to make the bike an electric bike. And getting all the parts from online was a big thing, making sure that every part consisted with the battery and everything but once i got it to turn i was happy and i just had to figure out where to put all the wires and zip tie the whole damn thing wow well it's really great it's been a journey yeah and you deliver for doordash or for who uber and i also do doordash it just depends on the market sometimes one app or one platform is busier than the other okay so if you order food from doordash maybe tony will come in his electric bike that he made tony thanks a lot man thank you that was bike talk check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch support us if you like our work we post every week so check back have a good week Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.